Pastor Hans to lead us, but before that, we're going to stand and Diane will lead for us um, uh, the reading of God's word. So if you stand with me, why don't we read uh, God's word together here. John 17, 20 to 26. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through the word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also be in us, so that the word may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one in the, I'm them and you and me, and that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see me glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundations of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, and as we have been going through the uh, prayer of Jesus for his disciples in John 17, we have been seeing a pattern, and so this is our last week in John 17, but to give you an um, overview of what we have seen, if you remember, Pastor Adam gave us the foundation of the glory of God being what Christ prayed for, and God being glorified through the giving of eternal life through salvation. And the salvation that God has given leading to our sanctification. And then this week, seeing that the sanctification that we receive leading to our unity. And so this is the pattern that we have been seeing in Christ's prayer, and we're going to look today then at how God then is glorified in the salvation of sinners through these aspects, salvation, eternal life, giving of eternal life, sanctification, and our unity. And so as we come to the word of God, let's turn also to him in prayer. Gracious Father, the one who has known before all time those whom he would choose to become his children, and that he, we thank you, Lord, that you have purposed good for us, that we might have confidence in the plan that you have given, that we might have the kind of confidence that is the rejection of the kind of self-seeking that led us to fall from grace. And we thank you, Lord, 
that in your providence you restore us to a faith and a trust in you that leads us to live holy lives, holy lives which leads us to partake in your life so that we receive eternal life. And that in coming to partake in you and having your words abide in us, we then are also brought into the kind of community, a unity with one another that is unlike what this world experiences. And so, Lord, we pray this morning that as we read your word, that your word would have its effect upon us, that we would grow in our desire to be unified with one another, that we would see the provision that you have made, that we might be unified, and the strength and the power and the certainty that comes from your good plan for your people to make us one, even as you are one with the Son. We pray this in his name, Jesus Christ. Amen. And so we have looked in John chapter 17 at how God is glorified, and it is the glory of God that is the chief purpose for what Jesus Christ has done in this world. And even as he has said, since you have given him, that is Jesus Christ, authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And then he says something very interesting because we do not see eternal life often in these terms. He says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world began. And we had looked before at this question of what does it mean to have eternal life? And eternal life is far more than mere existence. This world is full of dead people. In the movie The Sixth Sense, for those of you who had seen it, popularized that phrase, I see dead people. Well, it doesn't take a sixth sense to see dead people. All you have to do is go to, well, you won't see as many of them these days, but you go to a shopping mall, you go to the grocery store, you look around, you see dead people. In one sense, the coronavirus shows us how dead we are. Because this is a pandemic that has come upon this country that if we had the kind of community that we ought, if we had the kind of love for one another, if we had the kind of life-giving concern for one another that we should have, this pandemic would have had far less effect than it did and likely would have largely been eradicated. But because as sinners, we act in self-seeking, selfish ways, we both show the deadness of our current lives and bring a physical deadness to those around us. The Westminster Catechism begins with two questions. Who is the first and best of beings? The answer being God is the first and best of beings. And the second question saying, what is the chief end of humanity? And the answer to that being the chief end of humanity is to glorify God and enjoy 
him forever. And this is what it means to have eternal life, to be restored to that purpose of seeing God as a first and best of beings and being enabled once again to glorify him in our lives and to enjoy him forever. When we seek life apart from God, then we must find a purpose that we define, that we choose. But any purpose apart from God will be a fallen purpose, a limited purpose, something that cannot bear the weight of being the purpose for which we live. This is true for even good things. Take, for example, loyalty to a nation or to a country. This is something that many of our politicians try to raise in us, this desire to have our country prosper. And under the right conditions, loyalty to our country is a good thing. Every nation depends upon the loyalty and the sacrifice of its citizens in order for that country to be secure and to enjoy prosperity. And if citizens are not willing to sacrifice for the good of the nation, the nation will become weak and impoverished. But suppose you were to do that very good thing, to give your loyalty to the country in which you live, but that nation itself turns to evil. Clearly, the Nazi regime in Germany during World War II was one such nation. And if you had found your purpose in loyalty to the fatherland in that case, you would have turned to evil because loyalty given to an evil purpose then becomes subverted to evil. Other good things that we think of, the institution of marriage, marriage and commitment to marriage is a good thing. But suppose we made it an ultimate thing. Suppose we made marriage the highest value of our culture and we set up everything in our nation in order to uphold and maintain the value of marriage. If we did that, marriage would then become a weapon in the hands of those who would abuse it. It would become an institution that selfish people could take advantage of. It would become a device by which cruel people could exploit others. And if we made marriage the highest value, those who are not married or those who lost their spouses would be greatly disadvantaged. Our culture would not properly recognize the giftedness of the state of singleness. And finding a spouse would become then the be-all and end-all of existence and would result in poor marriages as people married for the wrong reasons. Marriage in that sense would become our God and we would become servants of maintaining marriages and marriages would be the goal as opposed to the way in which marriage would function for the purpose for which God created it, that two people could be united and enjoy learning to sacrifice for one another according to the purpose of God. And so we see that loyalty to country or the institution of marriage cannot bear the weight of being our ultimate purpose. And so we see 
that as eternal life comes into those who were once sinners, that what Jesus says in verse 3, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, that this does glorify God, because God himself is the eternal life that is brought into sinners. Eternal life is bound up in coming to truth, coming to know God, and knowing that God is the end for each one of us, the end of existence, the purpose for existence. And this is what Jesus Christ has done. As we see in verses 4 and 5, the Christ says that he has accomplished his work, and what was his work? Which was simply to reveal to us who God was. Remember what Philip said back in John chapter 14 and verse 6, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. But that is precisely who Jesus Christ is. He is the revelation of the Father. He, like the Father, has life in himself because he is God. And as we see in verse 5, that his glory, like the Father's, is eternal. And so to reveal himself was to reveal the Father. Now, last week, we noted that there was an interesting aspect to how Jesus was praying for the disciples and in how he expressed his confidence for the purpose for which God was calling the disciples. There was an aspect to it in which we saw there was a completed aspect to it. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. And so in this prayer that Jesus prays for the believer, there's an aspect here where we see that in accomplishing his work, Christ has accomplished something in the lives of the disciples where he can pray that they have accomplished these things. And we looked at how is it that Jesus could say this about disciples who shortly thereafter were going to flee and betray him. But what we see is that as Jesus completes God's work to glorify him by giving us eternal life through showing us who the Father is and through his life, what it means to live by the word of God, he revealed eternal life. And in giving eternal life, and in the life that he has in himself, in his eternal glory, he reveals the Father and establishes the certainty of eternal life. And what we see there is as we have eternal life, so also is the process of sanctification one which is certain in us. If we come to the truth in order to have eternal life, then we also must come to God because God is the truth. Um, 
Do I have the clicker thing? <laughs> Sorry, I just realized I'm a little behind on my slides here. Thanks. So, so how is God glorified in the salvation of sinners? We see that God is glorified in giving eternal life to sinners. God is glorified because he himself is eternal life for the sinner. And God is glorified in the sanctification of sinners since as they come to know him, they recognize who he is and live their lives according to him. And today we are looking at this aspect of God being glorified in the union, the unity, the communion of sanctified sinners who are his saints. So this week we are taking that last step. Because our sanctification is certain, our life, our eternal life, is also certain. And because our eternal life is certain, then God's glory is certain. And we can see why Jesus can say that he has accomplished the work that the Father has given him to do. And so as Jesus expresses his certainty in our obedience, this is connected to the completeness of Jesus's own work. I have accomplished the work that you gave me to do. But at the same time, there is an ongoing work that needs to be done. And this we see in the prayer starting with verse 11. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent them into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. And so in here, we see that there's this ongoing work that needs to be done. And this is a work that requires the constant help and vigilance on, be, on our behalf by the Father. In verse 15, Jesus asks the Father to keep us from the evil one. And so while the work of revelation and our acceptance by God is complete, the work of living in the world and the process of sanctification is ongoing. Let me ask the question, how is God glorified in our sanctification? Notice that Jesus does not say that God is glorified in how much we know of him. He doesn't say that God is glorified by how big we grow our church. He doesn't even say that God is glorified by how faithfully we keep his word. 
what Jesus does say is that God is glorified through the visible consequence of our sanctification, our unity. He says this twice. In verse 11, he says, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. And so we see what unity does within the church is it makes us reflect the Father. When the world looks upon the church and it looks upon a unified church, they see the revelation of God because we are being made one even as the Father and the Son are one. And he says this again in verse 22, explicitly connecting the glory of God with our unity. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. And so as God sanctifies his people, they are brought into unity. But the process that this occurs by and the way in which we as a church can glorify God through this may seem in certain ways counterintuitive. And so this helps us to see how do we as PCC, how do we as this church honor and glorify God? There's a dynamic to our unity, which is not true of how the world is unified. And we can get at this aspect of it by looking at the idea of denominations. Many people see denominations as kind of an evil that has befallen the church. You know, why isn't the church all one? Why are we so schismatic, splintering off into different churches and splintering off into different denominations? And there's Baptists and there's Presbyterians and there's Lutherans and there's Anglicans, uh, all these different denominations. And isn't this, in a sense, destructive of our demonstration of unity? But it highlights an essential aspect of Christian unity. Because Christian unity, unlike the unity that sometimes we see within this world, is not a unity that is achieved either by indoctrination or force. Christian unity involves persuasion, conviction, and understanding. We follow in this the example of Christ, because Christ did not compel his followers, but treated them as friends, making them partners in his mission. He does not simply order his followers to simply obey his commands, but reveals the purpose for the commands to his follower and reveals the Father to them. And so for this reason, denominations serve an essential function within the church of today. And this is because different people have different convictions, different understandings that they have come to through the scriptures. Right now we're having a baptism class, and there's different views of what baptism is and what it represents. And so for certain denominations, baptism represents entrance into the covenant community. And baptism serves as a mark of entrance into that community 
much in the way that in the Old Testament, circumcision represented the mark of entrance into a community. And so for these denominations and churches, they have the conviction, they have the understanding that through the progress of Revelation, what God commands his followers to do is to baptize their infants because as children are born into believing families, they are to perform this act that shows their commitment to raise their children within the covenant community of the church. And so for people who have this particular conviction, the way that they honor God is by obeying what they believe God has revealed to them. Now, in this church, we have a different understanding. We believe that baptism is an act of faith, that when you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then you respond in faith through your testimony of baptism. And so when we baptize someone, we want to know that this person has trusted in Jesus Christ and knows who Jesus Christ is. So that when they are being baptized, the baptism becomes, in a sense, a visible testimony of what they have trusted in Jesus Christ to do for them. They identify with Jesus Christ in his death and his burial and resurrection. So that Jesus' death is their death. And the life that he now lives is their life. And this we depict through the lowering of the person into the water and raising them out again. And so in this way, we are striving to testify to who we believe God is, the kind of relationship that we have with him, and the faith that we have placed in his son, Jesus Christ. And so each of these two communities then, in a sense, needs to worship in a way that comports with their understanding. And if, for example, a Presbyterian was to come to our church and just say, oh, well, I'm not gonna baptize my children. Uh, th that's not what they do in this church, so I'm just going to go along with what they do. That person then would be disobeying their conscience. They would not be following what they believed the revelation of scripture was commanding them to do. And likewise, if we were to go to a Presbyterian church and we did baptize our infants, we would be misusing, according to our understanding, the sign of baptism. Now, there's a way in which we can respect one another. So there was a time when Irene and I went to a Presbyterian church and they had this wonderful ceremony where they presented the infants that they were baptizing to the congregation to say, these infants are now coming into our community. All of you who belong to this church now have a responsibility to be part of how these children are raised in an understanding of the faith. And so we want to work together in order to raise these children and help them understand and come to know the Lord within this community of faith. And we thought they did this in a very good way. And we're not going to condemn them. But we still need to live according to our understanding of how it is that we believe God has commanded us to follow and obey him in baptism. And so we see that denominations as a whole different beliefs allow the people of God to worship in a way which is consistent with what they believe God has taught. And this is because 
unlike other human institutions, the way that the church comes to unity is they come to unity in truth. Your word is truth. And if we were to ask people to compromise their understanding of truth in order to be unified together with us, in a sense, what we would be doing is we would be asking people to sin. How does this look at PCC? How do we come together in truth and in unity? And so according to this pattern that we see Christ has given to his disciples, we see the first thing is we must grow. If we are to come together in unity, what we must do is we must grow in the depth of our understanding of God. We want to grow deeper and broader in our knowledge of who God is and what he has commanded us to be. We also will live within an edifying and confident community. And this is something that we talked about in past weeks. In a postmodern culture where we define experience or come to know truth through experience, every person has their own notion of truth. And truth gets established within a culture by, in a sense, a preponderance, having a preponderance of the population of the people within that culture agreeing to believe something is true. But there's a way in which that is not a stable way to live. And it is certainly not a good way to live. Because if we have been designed, as I think is quite apparent, by a creator, if our natures are not constantly changing, then if we are constantly changing the truth according to which we live, we'll, we'll be living in many ways that are inconsistent with the way that God has made us. But as a church, we have a foundation, an unchanging foundation for truth, an unchanging foundation for truth which comports with reality. It agrees with the way the world is. And so, for example, you won't find too many people being threatened by someone who says, well, I don't believe in the theory of gravity. Because you could simply take that person up to the roof and say, look, I think gravity exists. If you don't think gravity exists, I think you're going to have a problem. But I'm not threatened by your lack of faith in gravity. Because that's a truth that exists whether or not, independent of the... Um, other person's belief in whether that is actually true. And so we live in a community that can be confident of truth because it is a truth established by God, a truth which is instilled into the way that God has made creation. And then finally, as a church, we want to strive to proclaim God through the life of this community and how we come into unity. And so I want to use as a, an illustration an example which is very much in our mind because it's something that we are actually having to work through at the present time. How is it that we can resolve differences within our community? And this last week, we've had uh, quite a lot of discussion over how this church can be unified. And as Gordon mentioned, we have had the vote, the church vote, to call Brother JJ to be our pastor. 
And yet there are some within this congregation that have expressed certain concerns and doubts. And so how do we establish unity in this kind of situation? Well, first, as we can see reflected in the prayer of Jesus, the church has certain boundaries. Every community has boundaries. It's impossible to have a community that does not have boundaries. Um, in the last decade or so, for a while, there was a great emphasis on the idea of tolerance. And those of you who are older probably remember the rallying cry of tolerance and how we need to be a tolerant culture. But one of the things that people noticed and that D.A. Carson pointed out in his book, The Intolerance of Tolerance, is that there was a fundamental inconsistency in the nature of our culture at that time, which said that we had to be accepting and tolerant of every kind of view that was put forth. But first of all, some views are inconsistent with one another. As we were looking at before, in, in terms of the denomination of the church, you cannot both believe that baptism, that infants are the proper recipients of baptism, and at the same time believe that believers are the ones who are the proper recipients of baptism. But in terms of a fundamental problem with the notion of tolerance as it has been promoted in our culture was simply this. Tolerance had to be completely intolerant of intolerance. <laughs> Let me say that again, so maybe a little bit uh, twisting our heads. Tolerance, the idea that we had to be a completely tolerant culture made this culture intolerant of intolerance. And so what did that mean? That meant our cult culture was intolerant. But our culture was saying everyone has to be tolerant. But in the very notion of tolerance was baked in the idea that we had to be intolerant. And so we were living in an inconsistent culture that contradicted itself. I'm really having trouble with that thing. <laughs> but the kind of boundary that we have in this church are different kinds of boundaries. It's not an insistence upon tolerance. One of the things the absoluteness of Jesus' prayer pointed to was the utter lack of compromise with respect to one thing, which is that the purpose of the church is to come to know God. God must be the object of our knowing in order that we would glorify him. Do you remember why we said it was so important to glorify God? One of the reasons it's important to glorify God is because God is the foundation of goodness. God is the foundation of truth, love, beauty, nobility. Every good attribute, every good thing there is, God lay at the heart of it because it is his being, it is his nature that establishes their goodness. It is how, oh, that's okay, Gordon, thanks. <laughs> oh, Gordon doesn't trust me to do the slides. <laughs> Actually, you can, you can uh, we're, we're all the way to the end of the slides. You can just forward it all the way. <laughs> um, God is the foundation 
of goodness. God is the foundation of beauty. And when we recognize God for who he is and when we glorify him because we agree with the goodness of the goodness of God, we glorify him, we honor him. And so one of the things that is a boundary of this community is that the purpose of this community is to come to know God and to come to glorify him. Another boundary of this community is that the way of our unity is not coercion. The way to unity within our community is not to enforce a certain point of view, but rather we develop understanding in community and in communion with one another as we live together in the bonds of love. There's some examples I found of how if we don't do this, it becomes a, uh, we actually lose our ability to find and discover truth. And so the church, because we have a common aim, and because we have a foundation that we can approach through love, which is empowered by the Holy Spirit, we're able to hear and listen and understand and process together different viewpoints in order to come to truth. And this is helpful in each one of our ability to come to truth. There was an, a, uh, a scandal a number of years ago within the academic world called the Sokol Affair. And there was a prominent mathematician by the name of Alan Sokol. And he published an article called Transgressing the Boundaries Towards the Transformative Hermeneutics of Quantum Gravity. And it was published in uh, the Science Wars issue of a particular journal. And what, what he proposed in this journal, which was a psychological journal, is he proposed that quantum gravity is a social and linguistic construct. And this article was duly published. But when you sort through the, the language, what does it mean that quantum gravity is a social and linguistic construct? What that meant was it was not the theories, but the reality, the laws of physics themselves that Sokol was claiming was a social and linguistic construct. In other words, how our society was, the way we interacted with one another, established, for example, the constant of gravity, which made zero sense. And yet, because within the realm the, the, the way of thinking of the journal that Sokol published this article in, they went ahead and published it. And a number of months later, he revealed his hoax by publishing in another journal the complete and utter nonsense that the first journal had published. Of course, this really embarrassed them, but this was not an isolated incident. Inspired by Sokol, there were a number of graduate students then who submitted 20 papers to various journals. And this was called the Grievances Studies Affair. And in the Grievances Studies Affair, uh, these students submitted 20 papers to various journals. And, and, and their deception was uncovered when the Wall Street Journal not discovered kind of the ridiculousness of the articles, but that the, the students had used fictitious names so that one of these authors did not exist. But by the time the deception was uncovered, four of the 20 papers had been published Three had been accepted, but not yet published. 
Six have been rejected, and seven were still under review. And what kind of articles are these? Well, one of the articles was a feminist revision of Adolf Hitler's Mein Kampf. What these students were trying to show was that when society, when culture becomes an echo chamber, and within the, the community of some of these journals, there was such a single-mindedness and a shutting out of other perspectives where anyone who used certain types of language would be able to publish an article even if the article was utter nonsense. And that's what we have to avoid in the church. And so, as an example, as we work through this process of calling a pastor, what's something that we have to do? Well, one of the things that we want to do is to hear from one another. And so as there's concerns, as there's differences of opinions, as there's different perspectives within the church, we need to be open to be challenged by these things. We don't do just what the elders say. We don't try to enforce a particular perspective. But the church has to be a community because we know there is a solid foundation for truth where we are able to hear, respond, and answer one another as we present different perspectives. We cannot become an echo chamber where only certain acceptable ideas can be discussed. We welcome questioning, dialogue, both from within and outside the church as we grow in an understanding, as we help one another to convictions so that our understanding, our sanctification, our knowledge of God, truth, not an enforced agreement, becomes the kind of thing that unites us. And in this, what we see through the prayer of Jesus Christ is that we will have the help of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to guide us into the truth, a truth which is not threatened by the ideas of society, a truth which cannot be overturned by legislation, but a truth which reflects the nature of the one true God who created us and established us. A truth that as we embrace it, glorifies God. And so let PCC, let this church be a community where we are open to hearing from one another with the understanding that we have confidence that there is a truth that God has revealed and that we can know. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who revealed you in his life of obedience, who reconciled us with you by his offering, his sacrifice on the cross, and who has prayed for us so that we can have confidence that one day every person who has placed their faith in your son, Jesus Christ, will come to know you and will have your truth. And so our part as a church 
is not to enforce a certain dogma, but we are fellow sojourners who are working together to come to know you and to come to know your truth. Give us a love for one another that covers over a multitude of sins. Give us true tolerance, which is a tolerance that desires the good of the other and wants to help lead another to truth and a humility which says, I do not have all the truth myself and I need to hear from you. Help us be a church that comes together in true unity. And we pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. After we close uh, with a hymn, we're having a special presentation today from our mission.